Welcome to the Theology Research News podcast. Theology Research News provides updates from K. Leuven's Faculty of Theology and Religious Studies to a worldwide academic audience. It features interviews with faculty members, discussions with visiting scholars, and updates about our publications, conferences, and other events. Please visit TRN at theologyresearchnews.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Today we feature a lecture by Peter Gemeinhardt, who is a professor from the Georg August Universität Göttingen. The title of his talk is The History of Christianity from Antiquity to Medieval Times, Major Trends in Scholarship of the Past 50 Years. Let us begin the reflection on the past by a quick glance in the near future. Every four years, the worldwide community of patristic scholars gathers at Oxford. And this will again take place this summer, Brexit or not. Breaking off this tradition would seem inconceivable to anyone who earnestly participates in patristic studies. This is not only due to the fact that Oxford is a nice medieval-looking city with a famous university. Its urban appeal and academic flair is easily matched by other places, including Berlin. There is some other, another reason. Since I have been studying the field of church history for 20 years now, Oxford has been the marker of a particular kind of doing research. In conversation with people from all over the world, including many countries where Christianity is not or has never been the dominant religion, across denominational divisions, employing methods from theology, but also from religious studies, cultural studies, history, linguistics, and last but not least, dealing with the broadest range of topics you could think of. According to the late Charles Kangeneser, the Oxford conferences are, quote, the brain and the heart of the worldwide patristic community. And a similar case could be made for the annual international medieval congresses at Leeds, even larger than the Oxford conferences. Therefore, the most pervasive trend in the history of Christianity during the last decades seems to me the establishment of an international interdisciplinary, anti-hierarchical, and multi-perspective scholarly culture within our field. Well, this could seem as a bold claim. We have not yet left this life behind and dwell in a place which Holy Scripture calls paradise, as it were, a place of erudition, or, so to speak, a lecture hall for the souls. Thus, origins, eschatological vision of a never-ending academia. Origin, original sin has not been overcome by organizing patristic and medieval conferences here and there. Scholarship, as long as it is a human affair, will suffer from human shortcomings, misunderstanding, and even hostilities, hopefully not here. But whom am I telling this? After all, it were scholars at Leuven, who have masterfully scrutinized Augustine's doctrine of sin and grace, with results which might be reckoned major steps of Augustinian scholarship Although such, such research can lead to disillusionment, how can one optimistically return to his or her daily work after having delved into the peculiarities of the Donatist controversy? It could seem more attractive to join the Pelagian camp and try to struggle hard for one's own salvation. Or one might turn to Jan van Reisbrock and his teaching of the union of God and man as an alternative, also on special offer at Löwen. And if nothing else helps, there are still some colorful insights in early Christian martyrdom on display. <laughs> I was asked to reflect upon major trends in scholarship here in the last 50 years and upon the specific contribution of Leuven to these developments. I will try to complain and comply uh, with this request in two steps. First, by depicting five such major trends uh, and then highlighting where I see groundbreaking contributions of your faculty. It goes without saying that my choice of topics in both respects will inevitably be as selective as subjective. Or more precisely, this choice is to a certain extent biased by my own interests, you have heard about them, by my knowledge and of the severe limits of this knowledge, and of course by the time you have allotted to my talk. Therefore, I beg your understanding in advance if I miss one point which you would have liked me to talk about, uh, it's not, um, well, to offend you, but simply um, the limits of what I can and will do. But in general, let me start with a very general point. It's my deep conviction that studying the history of Christianity, not only at this faculty, might be helpful 
in preparing people not only for an academic career, but for real life, since it introduces scholars, readers of books, and anyone interested into the highs and lows in the history of human beings, social communities, the church, and the world. And even if Historia is no longer magistra vitae, as Cicero and others until early modern times believed, st history still illuminates what human life is in the light of how it became, what it is, and what its future possibilities might be. Church history investigates how Christianity has repeatedly and success successfully managed to adjust to new cultural, political, and social horizons. And thus it might still provide orientation where we when we encounter new challenges today. When every kind of writing history contributes to such individual or collective self-orientation, a faculty of theology will tackle this task based on the assumption that human history isn't everything. As the former Archbishop of Canterbury and renowned church historian Rowan Williams wrote, what we need is, quote, a way of reading church history that is theologically sensitive. Certainly this does not imply writing the history of salvation as in late antiquity of the 19th century. Williams hastens to add that, quote, good theology does not come from bad history. If I'm allowed to anticipate one of my conclusions, this is what distinguishes this faculty's research unit of history of church and theology. To be theologically sensible and to provide historical insights which may fuel a theological discourse. But before I jump to the answers, I should start with posing some questions. To start with, what are we really talking about? In the invitation to this anniversary, the topic enjoined on me was named Major Trends in Scholarship on the History of Christianity, Church History, History of Church and Theology. So you're not quite decided what you're doing or what you're celebrating here. Well, are the designations of our field simply interchangeable? Perhaps I'm lending too much weight to mere names, but we should be attentive here. The vision of an interdisciplinary and multi-perspective culture of research and teaching depends on a common understanding, whether disciplines and perspectives are, co are compatible with each other. And this compatibility might become precarious if designations are mixed too quickly. Therefore, let me briefly dwell upon the relationship of Ries et Signa, things and words. Again, the Oxford International Conferences on Patristic Studies are a case in point. Patristics is not really a clear-cut academic discipline. Every four years in Oxford, people meet who will have different understandings of what they are doing academically. A Greek Orthodox theologian, a German church historian, a French patristic scholar, or an American teacher of religious studies can all be members of the Association Internationale d'Etudes Patristiques. And they show, thus Martin Wallraff, a surprising consciousness of unity and reconciled diversity. But not all of them would declare themselves scholars of patristics and even less church historians. Um, just to name one example from the literature, the Oxford Handbook of Early Christian Studies, published in 2008, is introduced by Elizabeth Clark under the heading From Patristics to Early Christian Studies. Clark herself is eager to build, as she says, bridges between old and new, but she reckons there is old and new. Her title indicates a new perception of the focus of this field, and it stands to reason whether church and theology are in the same way part of early Christian studies as they were in patristics. This should bother us a bit, since your research and teaching unit is named History of Church and Theology. And this handbook is, not by surprise, um, only to a limited extent interested in theology. Only one, and the last of its eight parts, is devoted to theological themes. Theology, though still part of the study of Christianity, here is only one of many relevant topics like identities, regions, rituals, authorities, or expressions of Christian cultures. Similar uncertainties arise when we ask um, about which church we are talking when doing church history or history of church and theology. Can we study the one holy, Catholic, and apostolic third church of the Nicene Constantinopolitan to Crete? Not as a historical phenomenon, I would say. We can investigate the history of the church of, to which our respective faculty has institutional bonds, 
the Roman Catholic Church in Belgium or the Protestant churches in Lower Saxony, but the latter would not be very entertaining. Obviously, in our common academic practice, we write the history of churches and their plural appearance. Scholars who are concerned with the one and a half millennia before the age of confessionalization inevitably scrutinize doctrines, practices, and institutions in the historical variety, including constructions of orthodoxy and of deviations from the right Christian, the correct Christian faith. Otherwise, by presupposing which church is true and which false, we would stop doing historical work. Our discipline is a victim to this development, but had its share in overcoming polemical definitions of ecclesiastical identity. And it is encouraging that this Faculty of Theology and Religious Studies at the Catholic University invited me as a Protestant theologian and ordained pastor to deliver a laudatory speech for today. But then, what precisely do we investigate as church historians? I would suggest that history of Christianity is the most fitting option, or the more fitting option. Officially and wholeheartedly, I am professor of church history. But speaking of the church requires careful handling. Textbooks often employ this notion with implicit or explicit agendas. <clears throat> One famous example, uh, Henry Chadwick's The Church and Ancient Society, published in 2001, is brilliant in its presentation but also very Anglican, and speaking of the church in the singular, from Galilee to Gregory the Great, so the subtitle of this book. My predecessor at Göttingen, Karl Andresen, in 1971, published uh, Die Kirchen der Alten Christenheit, The Churches of Ancient Christianity. There he took into account the difference between Christianity and church and developed a typology of churches, indebted to social theories of Max Weber and Ernst Trölsch. But these categorizations of the many Christian ways of life remain too schematic for the actual differences between, for example, Episcopal churches in late antique cities and Gnostic communities, or a millennium later, the Papal Church in the Middle Ages and the poverty movements or mystic circles living at the fringe of the established church. Not only in nascent and postmodern Christianity, the boundaries of the church are blurred. We observe this in many periods. Speaking of Christianity, or even of multiple Christianities, admits that Christianity is more than the Church. Such open-mindedness does not neglect the notion of Church, but conceives of it as manifold phenomenon which in the course of time took different shapes which are investigated within the history of Christianity. Dogmatic definitions of the Church can be seen as attempts to establish the identity of this community vis-à-vis -vis other communities. Although since daily life was less dominated by doctrines than by practices in most periods. Thus, the Church is included in the history of Christianity as a subject of study, not in an essentialist manner. While Alfred Loisy famously said that Jesus proclaimed the kingdom of God and it came the Church, we should ask which Church, why this Church, and finally, why so many of them. Now let's turn aside that uh, two major trends in scholarship. And I want to highlight five such trends in past and current uh, scholarship. And I will pay special attention to aspects which unite research into the history of Christianity throughout pre-modern times, and thereby bridge the still existing gap between different historical periods and different regions. Different in actual research, but perhaps not in reality. Let me just hint as a, at a, a book project which seems exemplary for modern trends, is the 14 volumes of the Israeli Christianisme des Origines à nos jours, published 1990-2004 under the editorship of Jean-Marie Mailleur. Um, I think this is characteristic for recent scholarship, a broad understanding of Christianity, very broad, a predominance of social and cultural aspects of history, while theology is no longer in the foreground, a widening of the scope of interest to non-European or non-Western perspectives, and an innovative timeline which, to the surprise of the Protestant historian, does not view the Reformation era as the most important upheaval within the history of the Church. Very offending. At first, time and space. Fortunately, historians of Christianity have left behind what Columbus Stewart calls the binary Patrologia Latina Patrologia Greca view of the Church Fathers. When Jacques Paul Minier laid out the tradition, the tradition of the Fathers unbrokenly from early Christianity to late medieval times, 
Only theologians of the realm of the former Roman Empire were of interest, a perception that can be traced back to Eusebius' church history. Such a reductionist view has duly become subject to revision. Avery Cameron observes that, quote, within late antique scholarship there has been a decisive turn to the East. And this includes the question whether Islam is part of late antiquity. And this in turn uh, requires a clarification what is meant by late antiquity itself. In 1971, Peter Brown's groundbreaking book, The World of Late Antiquity, from Marcus Aurelius to Muhammad, initiated a debate about the coherence and limits of this period, period which is still going on. Prominent voices argue for an origin of Islam within late antiquity and its discourses. And this has led to new interest in the melting pot of the Arabian Peninsula, where pre-Islamic Arabs, Jews and, Jews and Christians lived side by side. But it remains difficult to assess the letters, the Christians' awareness of and reaction to nascent Islam in detail. Now, Peter Brown, as you might know, has since the 70s offered varying periodizations of the first millennium CE, and not, of all of, not all of them have proven as fruitful as the concept of late antiquity itself. But a certain consensus seems to emerge. Antiquity did neither end with Augustine, as Henri-Irene Marot opted in his dissertation, Saint-Augustin, La fin de la culture antique, to which he later added a very famous uh, retractatio, which is even more important than the original book. Nor ended it with the Council of Chalcedon, a point of view dear to representatives of German dogmengeschichte. Nor with the Gentile invasion in the fifth century, which appears more as a merging of traditions than as a violent destruction of the Nicene or Catholic Empire by Aryan barbarians. Elsewhere, I have proposed to speak of multiple late antiquities, since we observe similar transformations in various parts of the Roman Empire, but not at the same time. The institutions of law, administration, and education vanished in the Latin West during the 6th century and were replaced by alternative models of government in the Gentile kingdoms, while the Justinianic restoration of mainly the Greek East ran into the Byzantine Empire without violent interruptions. White part of the former empire, where at that, part, at that time, however, under Persian and later under Arab rule, were for Syriac Christianity a threat and a shelter at the same time. By the latter, the Syrians, ancient education and philosophy were transmitted to early Islam, and, as in the case of Aristotle, later again reinfused into Christian theological and philosophical reflection. If late antiquity appears as pluralized period of transition with high mobility, multilingualism, and intellectual creativity, we should accordingly write medieval history, not as an exclusively Latin affair, in which at some points foreign elements intruded, Greek philosophy, Jewish, and Muslim religion. While the contemporaries may have viewed such encounters as completely unexpected, Recent research has outlined different layers of the reception of, for instance, Aristotelian philosophy and its interpretation by Ibn Rushd and Moses Maimonides, alternative to inner Christian reception, the appropriation of Greek writers like John of Damascus or Dionysius the Areopagite in scholasticism and in mystical theology. The monumental Oxford Guide to the Historical Reception of Augustine, some of us have contributed to this, has shown that there is much more than one unified Augustinianism. Current scholarship covers regions and languages from Western Europe to Byzantium and from Iceland to the Silk Road cultures, all of them part of the history of Christianity and representing what I would see as a late ancient and medieval globalization of all letter. Should it be our task to bring these topics together and aim at a global history in pre-modern times? No question that this would be an enormous challenge, but it might be as timely as rewarding. And as Johann reminded me, many scholars today know not only Latin or Greek, but also Syriac <coughs> and Arabic or European vernaculars. And this opens up new possibilities for collaboration in such a global history and moreover, it makes such collaboration desirable as well as unavoidable. But such an enterprise, and this is my second point, would have to be conceived of as a history of religions, with Christianity as one religion among many. History of Christianity is written from many perspectives, not all of them indebted to a Christian view from the inside. 
earlier perceptions of an open conflict, or even war, between pagans and Christians in the late 4th century had given way to a more nuanced picture of the successive Christianization of the empire and its surroundings. This is to say that social, cultural, and also religious identities and boundaries were constantly invented, negotiated, made. Making off has become a common marker of such a discursive approach. There are many books who are called Making Off. I don't enumerate them, but only a footnote. Uh, the first holder of the chair of the study of the Abrahamic religions at the University of Oxford, Gieskrumsa, has published his findings under the title The Making of the Abrahamic Religions in Late Antiquity, a period which he has described as crucible. His successor, Anasatia Abulafia, a medieval scholar, has outlined the vital and complex reality of intellectual encounter that lurks behind, for instance, the well-known facade of Abelard's collations between a Jew, a philosopher, and a Christian. Concerning my previous thoughts on church history and history of Christianity, I should mention that some scholars speak of Christianities in the plural. Whether this is the solution or part of the problem stands to reason. But certainly, it is worth pondering whether there were plural Christianizations. For late antiquity, this is a point which has been made by Hartmut Lepin, and this may be true for other periods of Christianity. Although something that is constructed does not necessarily lack any real life basis, it was surely possible to know what a Christian or Jewish way of life would have been in late antiquity or the Middle Ages. Binary oppositions like Christian, pagan, Christian, Jewish, orthodox, heretic, monastic, scholastic, do not simply mirror reality, but shape and create realities. And in the sources, they serve, as, uh, they serve to manage Christian diversity. That's Wolfgang Wischmeier. The debate about the parting of the ways of Christian and Jewish religion is a case in point. A long durée of the emergence of this distinction until the fourth century has been advocated by Daniel Boyarin. But also more cautious scholars like Judith Lieu and Tobias Niklas remind us not to be too quick in asserting collective identities of religions in pre-modern times, and to be careful not to model them according to modern perceptions of religion. I do not share the agnostic view, which is popular among some scholars of religious studies, that there is no religion at all before modernity. But certainly Christianity was and is a, not the, religion, and we should no longer echo Adolf Harnack, who wrote that, quote, he who knows this religion and its history knows every religion. <coughs> Tightly connected to this focus on the formation and negotiation of religious identities is the next major trend which I want to single out. The impact of social history and cultural anthropology on the history of Christianity. One may doubt whether the spread of Christianity is only due to the Holy Spirit, as Luke Acts suggests. One might choose to employ sociological, even statistic methods in order to explain the successful mission of Christianity throughout the Roman Empire and beyond. In his book on the rise of Christianity in 1996, Rodney Stark has calculated with a quantitative growth of 40% each decade, in analogy to modern religious movements like the Mormons. He ends up with a population of perhaps 20% of the um, whole population of the empire in the 4th century. This is a safe guess. Whether it is true, we don't know, because one has to take into account epitomies, persecutions, and oscillating inclinations to a belief system like the Christian one. But still one gets an impression of the irresistible spread of the new faith within, as Keith Hopkins said, a world full of gods. So there was not only one more God, but the one God to whom people um, increasingly converted. Another question connected to social history is the role of women, which were central to this process. This is not groundbreaking new in 2019, but it is certainly a trend of the last 50 years. Women had for long been active in the religious education of their children. And apologists claim that in Christian communities, not only the learned and the rich were allowed to raise their voices, but also poor people, slaves, and women, who otherwise were silent in public discourse. It is difficult to assess the veracity of such claims to the role of women or the neglect of social milieus in pre-Constantinian Christianity. Ramsey McMahon speaks even of two kinds of Christianity, 
as he says, the established church and the second church, which in his view is the Christianity of the many, which were, quote, doing their own thing in the catacombs. This might be exaggerating, but there has been an increase of awareness during the last decades that the history of Christianity cannot be written on grounds of literary texts alone, since they mostly witness to the worldview of the happy few who were educated, bishops, theologians, monks, or schoolmasters. And perhaps you reckon it superfluous if I remind you that pre-modern history has nearly exclusively been written by male writers, and that we have only dramatically few original texts left over by women, with a notable section, a section of Hildegard of Bingen and a handful other female mystical theologians in medieval times. But if you reckon this superfluous, it does only indicate that the cultural turn in religious studies has affected Leuven's church historians. Social history and cultural anthropology have perhaps generated more questions than the sources will possibly help us to answer. Gender issues in the early church are a striking example of this. But there might be better questions, if at the cost of traditional ideas, for instance, that the mission of the church was successful in the first line because of the power of the work of the missionaries and its divine authorization. This is, however, not to deny the importance of what Peter Brown has called the um, power and persuasion in the history of Christianity. But rhetoric has to be viewed in context. Be it the Christian schools of philosophy, which adapted patterns of argumentation of the second sophistic, be it Christian preaching in late antiquity as part of the complex staging of the worship for Christ and the saints, be it processions and passion plays of the Middle Ages, which took over the task of instruction, instructing the people. And it's, of course, continued in early modern times. While erudite commentaries on the Bible and sophisticated treatises on theological topics are peculiar for Christian theology, in pre-modern times and also beyond, we have to pay attention to performativity, spatiality, and materiality when it comes to practices of piety. And it is thus all the more regrettable that the ties of church history and archaeology, especially Christian archaeology, have loosened, at least in Germany. The question is not only whether institutional developments like the rise of the papacy corresponds to contemporary styles of building churches. Even more important is the observation that religious practice on the level of everyday life is mainly accessible in material remains, objects of piety, images and icons, or clothing, which then could be interpreted allegorically and thus re-theologized. Thus, even as practice is not all, Arnold Angenen's monumental Geschichte der Religiosität im Mittelalter witnesses to this practical term, which focuses not only clerical actions, but also many aspects of concrete religiousness, which cohered more or less with official guidelines, in most cases without bothering oneself much with being heterodox or deviant. The martyr cult is a case in point. From mid-second century onwards and until the end of medieval times and beyond, the veneration of martyrs and later of saints flourished. In the respective regulations included formal canonization, including formal canonization, only witnesses to the need of enclosing popular piety in the borders of the cult administered by bishops and clerics. Martyrs and saints, from the early Egyptian hermits and the holy men and even holy fools of late antique Syria to the merrymaking on St. Nicholas Day, were capable to transcend social boundaries and free ordinary people, if symbolically, from their confinement by, faith, faith, by fate and concrete happenings. In a book um, a few years ago, Robert Bartlett asks in the title, Why can the dead do such, such great things? You don't get an answer in this book, but you get many answers on the question of how could they get do such great things? And this is a step forward concerning the practices of piety. How would, could Christians get in touch with their heavenly intercessors? This is a theological question, but also a very practical one and an economical one concerning the sale of indulgences. But this early modern debate does no more belong to the period which we have wisely assigned to your Protestant guest. <laughs> but my fifth and last point doesn't play theology no role anymore in our field? Certainly it still does. But some qualifications are in order. Fifty years ago, the history of theology of, or dogma was flourishing. 
not the least due to the ecumenical encounter of Roman Catholic and Protestant scholars with Orthodox theologians, and not to forget among Chalcedonian and Oriental Orthodoxies. The latter dialogue led to the Christological agreement of Jean Bézier in 1990. The former dialogue necessitated intensified research into the fathers of the Trinitarian dogma, and this also had a significant impact on systematic Trinitarian theology. During the 1990s, when I was a student and young doctorate student, in Germany, a half a dozen Habilitationsschriften addressed Trinitarian issues. This uh, is no longer the case, for the better or worse. Attention was also paid to Arius as a Christian philosopher in his own right, not only as a heretic. I named, just named the brilliant book of Rowan Williamson Arius, and also um, on the Homoian theologians as theologians and not only as the inventors of something very subcomplex uh, theology. Another former heretic who became subject to many books but also to a series of conferences was Origen, with 12 congresses up to now. And there's a recent development that Origen seems to be the, the father of the thinking on freedom in, the, um, in European modern times. Whether this is true, I'm not quite sure. But anyway, um, 70 years ago, no one, uh, Catholic at least, was uh, really allowed to um, dabble into Origenian scriptures. Other examples could be added from the Middle Ages, where the lifting of the condemnations of 1054 at the end of the Second Vatican Council provoked thorough research into the relationships of Byzantium and Rome and their controversies about icons, filioque, and the papacy. As it seems, when your international programs started, the ecumenical climate was favorable for research into historical theology. While there is still a steady flow of books, papers, and conferences on theological topics, I would, however, register some changes. First of all, there is a shift in attitude. As I said, former heretics are viewed as participants in theological discourse, even if they did not succeed with their opinion. This can happen. Like Arius, Apollinaris of Laodicea has received fair treatments of, on his own, and also many so-called monophysites or miaphysites and Nestorians. Especially the notion of Gnostic or Gnosticism has come under fire. On the one hand, this is due to the complex variety of texts and genres, genres which had since Irenaeus been summarized as Gnostic. <coughs> Some prefer to confine this category to a certain kind of theologizing, David Brackey, for example, or do away with Gnostics at all, because this is too dubious a category, as Michael Williams or Karen King. On the other hand, it has become clear that those who were defamed as Gnostics by Irenaeus of Lyons and others were not outsiders, but at least initially, groups within Christian communities. Valentinus, for example, blamed as schoolhead of the Valentinians, is even known to have applied for the position as Bishop of Rome. And allow me to note that um, in my lectures I always said it has ever been the case until Benedict XVI then in Rome, not the clever one, but the pious one was elected. Of course, he failed and left in angry mood, according to Tertullian, but the story indicates that the clear difference of orthodox and heretic has given way to a plurality of ways of doing theology. And therefore, besides doctrinal positions, the production, transmission, and qualification of theology have to be focused. Christoph Marchis, in his Polygomena to Early Christian Theology, includes, for example, the biblical canon, liturgy, and institutions of uh, education. For the second century, he suggests to speak of a laboratory. Nothing was decided at this, po decided at this point. Others have scrutinized the functioning of synods and the discrete charm of ecclesiastical bureaucracy. Thomas Kalman. Biblical exegesis has ever found interest in patristic studies, but now um, Francis Young, for example, has written a very fine book on biblical exegesis and the formation of Christian culture, so what emerged from um, doing exegesis. The interconnection of theology and education has been investigated, for example, um, also with a, uh, to the Syriac school tradition of Edessa and Nisibis, very illuminating. Attention has also been paid to the emergence of universities in medieval Europe, which was preluded by a time of coexistence and conflict of monastic episcopal schools and freelance teachers of arts, philosophy, and theology. For the 12th century, in a sense, parallels the 2nd century. No one knew where, um, how the cookie would crumble. 
In an edited volume on theology and education in the Middle Ages, I have myself collected some insights in what my colleague at Göttingen, Frank, Frank Rexroth, names a scientific revolution in a recent book with a nice title, Cheerful Scholastics, Fröhliche Scholastik, a good read. In a word, the debate has shifted from doctrinal differences to the shared or debated preconditions of defining doctrine. Augustine and Julian of Eclano held different op uh, opinions on human nature, original sin, and divine predestination, but they shared an, um, an educational background. When Augustine named Julian a philosopher just for show, and the latter counted with Aristotle of the Punic people, this hints at the cultural tradition and the rhetorical weapons with Christian, which Christians had appropriated in school, but it also reveals a common uncertainty how to justify this use of the pagan education with which Christian discourse was deeply impregnated. Avery Cameron has uh, coined the term of a rhetoric of paradox. And one facet of this topic is that monastic education was much more indebted to secular education than hitherto acknowledged. Researchers have for a long time trusted that Anthony the Great refused to attend school and learn letters. But in contrast to Athanasius' Antony in the life, in the letters of this hermit, he appears as a skilled philosopher in the Origenian tradition, as Simon Rubenson has demonstrated. In the wake of this discovery, further studies have revealed the dynamics of monastic education beyond Egypt, in Syria, Palestine, Asia Minor, and in the West, especially in Gaul. While it has always been known that monasteries eventually became sanctuaries of ancient culture and the upheavals what we nowadays call ethnogenesis instead of Völkerwanderung, research into the institutional, sociological, and theological details of this functioning of monasteries has begun and should be continued. And again, this history connects the beginning of the history of Christianity with the medieval continuation and beyond. Now, after having briefly outlined these five trends, I turn to the final and thrilling question, where can we locate the contribution of Leuven within the trends of scholarship which I have briefly outlined? I suggest that we begin with the last two sections, practice of piety and theology. This is, that is not to say that um, this research unit had no taste for the comparative study of religions or the impact of social history on the in, uh, investigation of theological doctrines or that people here had no interest in asking questions throughout the history of Christianity. Quite the contrary, there are colleagues among us whose uh, research foci cover 15th centuries from Augustine to the Second Vatican Council, or still highly respectable cover half a millennium from the medium mystics of the Low Countries to the Jesuit order in modern times. Not to speak of Syriac studies, where you always have to um, deal with, um, well, more than a millennium, to have to deal with the history at present times in tandem. But from my point of view, the obvious strength of this faculty's research stuff is that there are clearly defined topics around which many projects, publications, doctoral theses, and other activities crystallize, and thus represent specific core competencies of Leuven. So let me begin with a survey of such focal themes and come back to the aspect of interconnections later. And before embarking on this trip, I beg your understanding that in my spoken presentation, I will neither be able nor reckon it helpful to support my general observations with detailed bibliographical references. All of you are still young enough to remember your own bibliographies. And everyone else is cordially invited to make use of the excellent electronic infrastructure of KU Leuven, and you will find more than you can read. Since this is a celebration of 50 years' successful teaching with the prospect of continuing it, there is no need to pile up titles and numbers and thus create necrologies. If I should fail to do justice to your achievement, you will let me know during dinner, or uh, perhaps instead of dinner. <laughs> let me elaborate upon some aspects which stand out in the spectator's eye. At first, of course, there's Augustine. The towering figure of late and ancient Christian theology in the West and a special favorite of Leuven-based scholars for centuries. During the time under consideration here initially incorporated by Tarsisius Jan van Babel, it seems that there is a succession of three generations of Augustinian scholars from van Babel to Matthias Lambrechts and to Antony Dupont, each of them surrounded by a cloud of witnesses, that is, doctoral students, 
all of them prolific in writing and increasingly editing collected volumes. I see, however, shifts in the course of time, shifts of emphasis. Van Babel started with Augustine's Christology, but later became mainly interested in his spirituality, in his perception of an individual and communal religious way of life. This interest is perhaps not surprising for an Augustinian monk like Van Babel. It is not by chance that this last book deals with Augustine's doctrine on prayer, but does he really write on doctrine, or much rather on practice and the self and the encounter with God? For the book is titled, The Longing of the Heart. Perhaps this distinction is mistaken. In Augustine's view, in prayer, God's grace is at work. And this is certainly a theological theme. It connects this approach with uh, Matthias Lambrecht's research on Augustine's dispute with Julian of Eclanum. Here, obviously, grace was permanently at stake, but there were also questions of ethics, pious practice, ecclesiastical authority, and, as is well known, marriage and sexuality. From the dynamics of this literary exchange of two able theologians, a vivid picture of the challenges of the time emerges. It was hard work to establish oneself as a towering authority of forthcoming Latin theology. In comparative perspective, this question has been tackled in a nice volume on shaping authority in the Lectio series. I just mentioned in passing that the participation of scholars of this research unit in different collaborative projects in the field of arts and humanities did not make my topic easier to survey. But I'm used to such structures from Göttingen, and I'm sure that is as rewarding as well as inspiring. But how does a bishop become an authority? Well, first of all, by being elected. And it is to the merit of my friend Johann Lehmanns that we have easy access to the intricacies of episcopal elections in late antiquity by editing a volume on this topic. But then one has to prove the one and the only abilities and exegesis, apologetics and rhetorics, in a word, if not all, still a large part of the bishop's authority rests on his skills with the word. In my view, a highly impressive achievement of Leuven in recent times is the abundant research on preaching including your studies on the Cappadocian homilies and martyrs, as well as Anthony's extensive treatment of the sermons from the Pelagian and Donatist controversies. Whoever knows the difficulties of investigating this genre will acknowledge that this focus on preaching is as demanding as timely, and we can be grateful that it already has been reflected in the Ministerium Sermone series on a conference on preaching after Easter, that is, the liturgical years taken into account. As Anthony Dupont has shown, preaching in the early Christian era is situated in a neatly woven net of relationships. The preacher's individuality, his audience, the liturgical setting, perhaps some controversial circumstances, and not to forget the biblical text, or the martyrs act, which provides the subject matter of the sermon. Last year, to my great joy and surprise, we were presented with the impressive volume Preaching the Patristic Era, which only looks like the last word on these issues, but actually opens up many new questions. It seems that these remarks hint at another characteristic trait of the kind of history of Christianity written in Löwen, a fresh look at Christian thought and practice, while not denying that these features are distinctively Christian. As far as I see, your work is not, or not primarily, concerned with the many turns which we have witnessed during the last decades, or with rethinking Foucault's Societas I. I don't want to be misunderstood. Clarifying the methods with which I scrutinize the sources and the individual or institutional presuppositions of my work is essential for sound scholarship, not the least for members of a faculty of theology, a discipline which for the past 800 years has been struggling to make its scientific seriosity plausible. But it is one thing to employ methods in a fruitful way and another thing to restrict oneself to theoretical discussions without actual fruits. The harvest in Leuven is rich. My illustration may be illustrated by a remark on Paul Mama's book, Jan von Reusbrock, Mystical Union with God, where he defines this topic as follows. What makes the mystic a mystic is simply a particular kind of awareness, very pragmatic. Of course, one might prefer to add more sophistication to this definition, or even choose to reckon mysticism something that cannot be defined at all. But in any case, Jan van Reusbrock and Hardwig, the favorites of Löwen-based research in late medieval theology, 
would figure among the number of relevant mystical authors and texts notwithstanding the difficulty to find clear-cut limits of this particular field. So one can start uh, investigation um, and not only reflect the concept. Obviously, the same goes, as far as I've seen, for the notion of deification, to which you have, uh, Felsen has um, recently devoted two volumes, with studies from Hesychasm to Bonhoeffer and from Egyptian monasticism to Hans Urs von Balthasar. So much for wide-ranging perspectives. And while some may be of the opinion that the period of Rosbrock and Heidewig is what Johann Heusinger called the waning of the Middle Ages, a period of decline after which Europe was ripe to fall victim to the Reformation, here in Löwen one can still find pleasure in medieval Christian mystical literature, thus a very promising title of your recent paper. It might not be equally easy to find pleasure in the next topic which I want to mention, martyrdom. Although, one should not underestimate the black humor of some early Christian martyrs. The achievement of Löwen refers to early martyrdom literature as well as the developments after the end of the persecutions of the first three centuries. Schematically, for the first aspect, the name of Bodewein de Hansfurter is the representative for the letter Johann Lehmanns. I'm not quite unpartial here because a few years ago we had the opportunity to publish a nice volume on Christian martyrdom in late antiquity following up a conference in Göttingen. There are, however, so many studies of my dear colleague in this field that I dare to classify his work as major contribution to the scholarly discourse, starting with an editing volume with the telling title, Let Us Die That We Might Live, That We May Live. Again, homilies are the material which introduce us to late ancient perceptions of martyrdom and its theological interpretation. A discourse which is analyzed in a diachronic and interdisciplinary manner in other volumes edited by Lehmanns and by Landrechts, respectively. Your uh, doctoral supervisor's focus had been, besides Gnosticism and occasional outings into later times, um, especially the martyrdom of Polycarp, and thus the development of a Christian identity in the era of persecutions. With Johann's previous and current studies, this focus has shifted towards late antiquity. The discourse of martyrdom now becomes embedded into the theological debates of this time, especially in Gregory of Nyssa's homilies, and also Augustine has a word to say on this topic, of course. Contrary to earlier claims to the documentary value of martyr texts, such homilies are understood as literary texts, and at the same time as theological statements, so to speak, charismatic texts. Thus, the discourse on martyrs intersects with contemporary debates about the correct faith and the possibilities and limitations of its expression in human language. This is what I referred to earlier as theological sensibility, insensibility, when historical inquiry is conducted. Without neglecting the context, it is theology proper what is done here. That means not only martyrdom as a newly invented genre in early Christianity, not only mystical retreat as a cultural phenomenon in late medieval times. <coughs> Ancient and later Christians saw their belief in God at stake when people were sentenced to death, when orthodoxy and heresy were publicly debated, where the liturgy was celebrated and the ecclesiastical hierarchy was negotiated. These and many more aspects of theology might be the gift that our discipline could and should contribute to academic and public discussions of this day. And such a stance is even more convincing if it is valid not only for one region or period, but for wide parts of the ancient and medieval global village. Hence my last observation on Leuven's theological peculiarities. Um, including postdoctoral researchers, doctoral students and professors, it's still only a limited group of people who cover a wide geographic and chronological range, from the Roman Empire in East and West to the late Middle Ages and beyond the Empire to Oriental Christianity, starting with the work of Albert von Rui and uh, continued by the work of Hermann Teule. Here again, an institution is active, the Louvain Centre for Eastern and Oriental Christianity, Lokziok. At Göttingen, we are also fond of founding centers and finding acronyms, and we can discern whether this is only a nice title. It is not, as far as I see. Without explicitly claiming to do so, this research unit elegantly complies with the recent widening of perceptions of time and space. But to be sure, it does not only obey to such trends, but also sets them itself, as I hope to have shown.
whether you enjoy my talk or not, I have to come to an end. <laughs> I have uh, presented some uh, major trends in scholarship during the past half century and also some reflections upon your faculty's achievements. And I repeat it for the last time, it is said that I could not include everything here and especially not refer to other colleagues of this faculty with whom collaboration is lively and fruitful, as far as I know and have experienced. Such inner interdisciplinarity is characteristic of a faculty of theology, and it is perhaps in the best sense traditional. One thing, seem, one thing seems certain. If we reckon ourselves doing history of Christianity, we have to envisage Christianity as one of many cultural formations of late antiquity and medieval times. Not in itself, in itself coherent. Not in every aspect distinct from other religions. Continuously affected by its social, cultural, and political environment, and subject to many developments which were only partly initiated and controlled by Christians themselves. To me, such a realistic view is more a gain than a loss. It prepares us for the encounter with the modern world. Thirty years ago, Charles Kangiesa described patristics, quote, as nothing less than a hermeneutic of the historical foundations of European culture. This, I would add, is not only true for the study of early Christianity and late antiquity, but also for the Middle Ages, when Europe became Europe. It requires some qualifications. Due to developments since then, including a, a critical reflection on the focus on Europe, because most church fathers were no Europeans at all, neither Augustine um, nor the people from Syria, um, not, uh, also not origin. And today, Christians in North Africa and the Near East, cradles of Christianity, often live under difficult circumstances. I have hinted at the broadening of the sc scope of sources, traditions, and religions which are relevant to the writing of the history of Christianity, and this time it should not be too bold a claim that this history can only be written with regard to the encounters and conflicts of Christians, Muslims, and Jews, but also taking into account the mutual intellectual indebtedness of these and other non-Christian religions. However, we do not only encounter sources, but also people for whom these texts or images or other um, remainders form their own religious or cultural inheritance. They might be interested in the history of Christianity out of reasons which do not fit our scholarly approaches. None of us will deny that this poses new challenges. The overcoming of colonialist attitudes is easier postulated than achieved. Although it has been a decisive step in the right direction that this faculty established international study programs half a century ago. I must confess my own faculty did so only one decade ago. I have tried to shed some light from the outside on scholarly developments during this period, which nearly exactly coincides with my own lifetime. Again, let me express my deep admiration for your commitment to form an international community of scholars. In these turbulent times in Europe and the world, I can only encourage you to continue on this path. Thank you for your attention.